Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to Alligator Preserves. In today's episode, I'm going to try something completely different. I'm going to do a curated story based on a meeting or visit, really, I had with a friend's father, 85-year-old father. It's about what makes a man. But before I go on, remember that this year's 2018 SIPA Evie Awards are in full swing. You have till May 19th authors to get your books and applications to SIPA. Check out the link on my website or go to sipabooks.com and find out more information about this year's Evies. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. While visiting with a friend of mine in Woodbridge, Virginia last month, Christy Olson-Smedley, I had the pleasure of spending some time with her father. William Arthur Olson, O-L-S-O-N, is 85 years old, born on October 19, 1932. He lives next door to my friend, his daughter Christy, and the two work together, still. He came over for dinner with us one of the evenings I was there, and when Christy left us for new puppy training, she has an adorable new Cocker Spaniel, I invited Bill to stay and chat with me. I wanted to understand why this tall, gray-haired, wonderfully crazy, eyebrowed man is still working, and not so much for himself, but for others. Why isn't he chilling out, enjoying the fruits of his labor, resting on his laurels, if you will? I always get a chuckle when people say resting on their laurels because, well you know. (laughs) But really, I think he really might have gone home to continue working in his office after dinner if I hadn't suggested he join me for a whiskey. He agreed to a glass of wine. I drank the whiskey and tried to understand why Bill Olson continues to be driven. And so I took him back to his youth Okay, well, anyway, I was picked there by the uh, head of the BOAG program at the high school, which was in Minneapolis. Oh, so you're still in high school? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, this was in high school. Okay. And uh, uh, so I, uh, uh, I got permission from the school to go to uh, high school for four days a week and then have Fridays off every week. Off to work? To work. Okay. Yes. Not off. No. <laughs> <laughs> Providing I kept up my grades in the other classes and all. Working at the Topol's farm worked well for him because, in his own words... That worked out well with me because I've always been hyper. But being hyper can't be the only reason he's still working. I learned about the Topol's, Leo and Liz, and their children, the small 180-acre farm with... 20 dairy cows, pigs, chickens, diversified farms that they had then. He said that they were diversified, mostly crops, because crops were the most important. Uh, This farm was in 
Delano, Minnesota on Route 12. And there were younger children than he was at the time, a total of five children. Uh, I really, really got into that. I thought that was really nice to, uh, to work out there. They gave me a small salary for working there. I asked if he remembered his salary, and he mentioned how small it was. I think it was more or less after they had uh, sold their their pigs for slaughter, they would get money and they would pay me. Okay. That is part. <laughs> Leo Topol, the man of the house, was the boss. But he talked about how farming in Minnesota was a cooperative venture. All the farmers around there were very cooperative. Uh, and they worked together from the standpoint that... Uh, Often, harvesting crops was a multi-person job. So you would go from farm to farm and and, uh, harvest the major crops, usually corn, uh, corn crops, uh, occasionally soybeans. Then uh, you'd work a whole day and you'd be able to harvest, you know, many of the fields from that farm. Mm And the women had an important job, too. The women's job was to feed you lunch. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, little lunches, and then a big dinner at noontime. And they had competition. They all wanted to make the best dinner for you that they could. So it was, and of course, when you work hard, you eat a lot. Yes. So it was really something to uh, uh, go and, and get the food from uh, one place and another. There was, I know there was one place that they pretended they were poorer than they were. And we, we sometimes were, uh, felt we were kind of cheated out of a good meal at their house. That woman never won a competition. They didn't win the competition, but most of, them, most of the women, they liked the idea of cooking for this big bunch of men who went from farm to farm in the harvest season. He'd work on the farm from Friday to Sunday, taking a bus to and from each place. I had a room in the house, yes. Uh, in the, uh, uh, the house did not have central heat. It had a kerosene heater in the living room, which kept the first floor from freezing up. The bedrooms for the uh, kids and me was on the second floor, Mm -hmm. which was not heated. Mm -hmm. And in the wintertime, you got uh, real experience in how to get undressed in under the covers and instantly. There were no dogs to keep them warm in bed at night, but they had lots of blankets. It was essentially the outdoor ambient heat on the second floor. But did Bill complain? It, it really was a kind of a primitive life that I, right. uh, I, I, I really enjoyed. He would help care for the animals year-round, you know, milking and such, because... Cows don't take time off. <laughs> He told me about bringing milk to town every day, either by tractor trailer, since they didn't have a truck in the wintertime, and uh, how it was really difficult to start the tractors in the winter that have to occasionally hook up 
the horses to make the trip, which is about a two-mile trip to town. And he remembers a memorable time when he worked with his uncle and it was too cold for their truck to start. So after hooking up the horses and a hay wagon to bring the cream into Spicer, Spicer, Minnesota, which was around four or five miles to town, he told me about some special effects. One day it turned extremely cold and we couldn't get any engines to start. Well, by the time we got into town, my nose was frozen and both of my ears were frozen. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was miserable, but uh, we got the cream into town there that that day. And in Minnesota, cold means real cold. He remembered it as a good experience. So, so anyway, it was uh, it was a good experience. Being a hunter myself and having harvested meat from elk and deer, I asked about his experience with slaughtering animals. Oh yes, pigs. We did slaughter the pigs ourselves. We had a, a big cauldron, which uh, you'd build a fire under and heat up the water very hot. Uh, then uh, you would bleed the pigs through their aorta and collect all the blood to make blood sausage. Okay. And once you, uh, and of course, uh, that didn't take very long because, you know, they bled to death right. quite rapidly. Right. And then you would take the pig and put them into the cauldron. This is outside. Outside, yeah. Like uh, a big witch's cauldron. A big witch's, a big one that the entire pig would fit in. And what that would soften up all of the hair uh, on the pig. Mm-hmm. And, and you Pull them out of the cauldron, and then After with how long? How long? Oh, probably three or four minutes. Not not too long. Blanch them. Uh, <laughs> and then you'd have these devices. I don't know if you've ever seen a uh, uh, a skinning device. Yes, but, I have one. Okay, the the little uh, round things with the handle yeah. that you sharpen the edges, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then pull all of the uh, the hair off the pigs. Uh, After all the hair is gone, then you eviscerate the pigs. Uh, First thing you do is to take out the liver and have somebody run the liver to the house. And that was your meal. Oh, was this delicacy. Very fresh liver. And you know, liver has got this kind of a strange livery taste when it's fresh, it doesn't have that taste. Huh. It's delicious. I've never had pig's liver. I've had chicken liver and beef liver. Yeah, uh, yeah it doesn't taste like the conventional stored liver. It, 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 that is something that happens post-mortem. Okay. And if you eat it immediately, it's just, it's just great. As far as the processing of the meat went, they would take their, the cattle to an experienced butcher in town. We had a freezer in town that you would bring your meat in, and uh, you had a a compartment Mm -hmm. that was in a big freezer company that you could keep your meat. I don't recall having, uh, uh, we didn't didn't have a freezer, or Mm -hmm. for that matter, we had a very small refrigerator. I wondered how the Topols treated him, or if they considered him family after working with them for so many years. Oh, yes. They were really, 
really, really good people. They treated me well. And he worked on more than just the animals in the farm. Leotopo was not very handy with tools, so I would rebuild things like his corn binder every year because it had wooden parts and had to be replaced. And He drove a uh, 33 Chevrolet, and the transmission went out, and he trusted me to take the transmission out and replace the gear and put it back in again. Of course, cars were a lot easier to work with yes. at that time. Yeah. You, I knew where the transmission was, and you had good access to it, and uh, the bolts could be taken out with common wrenches, and it really wasn't. But that was something that he would never tackle working on his car, but uh, he allowed me to do it. So he worked that job for around three years before attending college, and during that time, recalled having one bath per week at the farm, whether he needed it or not. <laughs> Perhaps his work ethic came comes from his father, but I've also got to credit his mother, who sounded like quite a woman of her time. My father built uh, our home in uh, 1919. Uh, 1919, uh, yes. himself? Himself. My mother's family uh, was six girls, no boys, and uh, they lived in a very small house that had a first floor, which was the kitchen, and a second floor, which was the bedroom. And the the six girls had the, the bedroom, One which bedroom. had two beds in it, so there was three girls in each bed. Uh, the parents slept in the kitchen. Oh, my gosh. And finally, they converted part of their woodshed into a, a bedroom for the parents. But the girls then formed a pack. They said they decided that none of them could get married until their parents owned a nice house. So they went together, pooled their money. and My mother was the wealthiest because she... Uh, uh, she had a good job. She was a floor lady at a uh, place where they made clothing. And she had a pretty pretty good job there. And so, uh, and my father was very anxious to get married because they had boyfriends, but they couldn't get married. <laughs> so his father did much of the construction of his parents' house and bought a lot across the alleyway and built a house on it where his grandparents ended up living their entire life, Bill's grandparents. His father used a horse and buckets to make a basement for the place back in 1919 so he and his wife could marry and move in. Three other girls got married and two remained bachelors and they lived in the, the parents' house. And so they lived, uh, I had two aunts that lived together in the big old house right behind us. So, <laughs> so that, yeah, I don't see, think you see that going to be repeated again. That's, uh, no, not too often. Uh, but they, uh, they really took care of their, uh, their parents. Yeah. Too. Bill had only one grandparent alive when he was born, and his one remembrance of his grandfather was watching his father shave him. All of my grandparents, except one of my grandfathers, died before I was born. So oh. I only saw one grandfather, and I only saw him once. Okay. 
I didn't have much of a grandparent experience on it. And my grandparent, was, my grandfather was very sick, and uh, I went over with my father with him to see my grandfather, and my father shaved him. And, oh. and that was my, <laughs> my only remembrance of him, is him being shaved by my father. I asked if he recalled any scary memories, and he told me about a time a recently married couple, new neighbors, moved into the neighborhood, but they didn't stay in the neighborhood for too long because the man took to drinking, his only occupation, according to Bill, and ended up committing a heinous crime. And to my listeners out there, I do hope you're enjoying my episode about Bill Olson and what makes someone like him tick. I also hope you might consider becoming a patron of this podcast, Alligator Preserves. Please go to www.patreon.com forward slash alligator preserves for more information about how can how you can support this podcast. And now stay tuned for more of my curated story with an amazing man, Bill Olson. Frightened? Well, we we had a very interesting uh, time in, in Minneapolis. And then one day, I was out roller skating in front of the, the house with, we had concrete sidewalks, mm-hmm. and my sister was out there too, and she was paying attention to what was going on, and I wasn't. And she noticed that he came home in a taxi, and first thing he did was broke the front window and reached around and opened the door and, and went in the house. And she saw he was carrying something long. And uh, wouldn't you know, uh, not too long later than that, we didn't see the wife come home, but she came home and she was shot with a shotgun. And... Uh, my mother and my sister were in our house. I was outside. <laughs> when he shot her? When he shot her. And I didn't know what was going on. And, and so uh, my mother called the police and said something was happening next door, that they better come out immediately. And they did. Squad cars came out all over the place. And they... Uh, went in the house and they instructed me to stand behind a uh, an elm tree right in front of our house. Oh. They did not want me yeah. part of this whole thing. So I, I was ordered by the police to stand there. And would you know, this broke out a gunfight. He had a pistol and a shotgun and he was shooting at the police. And they were shooting at him. So we had... And you're standing behind a tree. Yeah, I was standing behind the tree there. In roller skates? In roller skates. How old? Oh, boy, I don't know. I must have been... Well, well, my my sister was old enough to actually testify in court. So uh, she must have been, uh, you know, probably an older teenager, or at least a teenager, and I was younger than that. So, uh, so, so anyway, uh, pretty soon the gun, gunfight ended. They, they had shot him in the shoulder. And uh, 
And it was obvious it was over, that the police were running in and out of the house and that sort of thing. So uh, I decided to come over and watch the front door. Together with other people by that time, you know, it had lasted quite a while. And pretty soon out the neighbor came with his handcuffs behind his back, being escorted with a couple of cops. And a third cop with his pistol, pistol whipping him from the house to the squad car where they were going to carry him away. And I remember somebody saying, what are you doing that for? And they said, if you saw what I saw inside the house, you'd do the same thing. So so I guess uh, nowadays that wouldn't have gone over very big. The man ended up getting life in prison, and when a new couple moved into the house, they never wanted to know or talk about the history of the house. He had a very nice car. It was a 1928 Buick, that, and he didn't have a garage, so we let him park his uh, 28 Buick in our garage. Bill remembered purchasing his first vehicle, but not the way most people purchase vehicles. When I got a little bit older, I was so enamored with 28 Buicks that I went together with the neighbor kids and we bought a 28 Buick. A bunch of you? Yes. Together? A bunch of us, together. It was not as in good shape as the... uh, It's a big car. We paid a pittance for it, I think, you know, because that was... It was getting old by the time... You know, we must, we must have been young teenagers, yeah. and that would have been in the probably in the forties, maybe even during the war. no, it couldn't have been during the war because there was gas rationing. There was gas rationing at the time. Uh, I remember waiting in long lines during the odd even number license plate gas rationing back in the seventies. Bill explained how it worked way back in the day. During the war, my father. Uh, he was not given a high-priority gas coupon. They had A, B, and C gas coupons. Okay. He was given the lowest priority. So he just uh, he just decided he would jack up his car, put it on blocks, and that's oh. where it stayed during the... How did they determine who the priorities? I think it was whether you had a job that required uh, you to use a car in okay. transportation. And he... He worked for Minneapolis Gas Company as a mechanic, and uh, they figured. Uh, and he, we lived on a streetcar line, also. Okay. We had easy, easy transportation. Mm-hmm. So, so the war was unusual. I really want to know more about his work ethic, and ask him about what it was like before the farm job. I tried to get jobs whenever I could mm-hmm. when I was in grade school. So I. I worked for a butcher first that was uh, Olson and Johnson Butchers. Olson was O H L S S O N. No relation to O L S O N. I would help them uh, sweep the floors and then I'd help them take the. They had a big walk in refrigerator and we'd take all of the, the meat that was on display in the display cases and put it in the walk-in refrigerator at night. And of course, the, the back where the the workers stood, it was all a uh, sawdust floor. Mm-hmm. That where the where the customers were, it was yeah. a clean floor. So yeah. you, you had to kind of 
sweep the uh, the area where the, the customers were to keep the sawdust yeah. off from yeah. their part. And then I was also in charge of the banking. You know, sweeping and banking. Sweeping and banking. I don't know that. Uh, they claim I was doing this at about six or seven years old. Really? And, and I, I had to, uh, five blocks to the bank. Ooh, Could you imagine taking a little kid? Giving him a bag of money? A bag of money. Of course, I didn't. It was a sealed bag of money, which yes. I, I would bring to the bank. And they'd have all the instructions in the bag uh, uh, as to what change they wanted, whatever, yeah. and then I'd walk it back. They had a seven-year-old delivering money bags to the bank. (laughs) I had a hard time getting my head around that one. What a difference two generations make, right? Or one generation, even. People weren't thinking of anything about mugging or kidnapping or any of that stuff that is considered so important today. They were probably all watching out for you. Yeah. It's like, watch the little cute (laughs) six-year-old with the money bag. So, uh, yeah, then I, uh, uh, the next door to the, uh, the meat market, a, a grocer started off, was a, a chain grocer called Big Ben's Chain. Bill remembers names of people and places from 60 and 70 years ago. I can't even remember what I had for dinner last night. And uh, so I think the fellow I worked for there, I think his name was Banghart or something like that. And uh, there my job was to uh, uh, start up the furnace early in the morning. We burned the mostly wood, wooden boxes and that, that, that everything came in, mm-hmm. in cardboard and that, in a big old furnace in the basement. Mm-hmm. But they, they didn't want to come until, you know, 9 or 10 o'clock, and they wanted the store warm by that time. So I would, <laughs> in the wintertime I was in charge of starting the fires in the morning and then I would do restocking. Yeah. And uh, when supplies came in, we would have the supplies delivered, you know, a truck would come up. And then a uh, we had a big flat board that went from the first floor to the basement and the boxes that would slide down, and then you'd catch them at the bottom and put them on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I worked for a few years for the the grocery store guy, too. So, But then I finally started going to high school. And <laughs> I didn't do that kind of work anymore. But, uh, yeah, I did. A, I think the first job I got, you know, well, I worked at the university, and I, I got 65 cents an hour. Oh, boy. And uh, I, I started college out of high school and didn't tell my parents. What? They didn't know I was doing it. Really? I had enrolled before they knew that I was going to college. Did you have to pay for it? Yeah, I paid my own tuition. It was uh, $52 a semester. I've, I, I've, I've still got my ledger that I kept with all of my expenses. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, so you, you worked while you were and I worked And I, I worked uh, at the university. Doing what? Uh, I was uh, actually working in, uh, 
in the cattle barns or taking care of calves and that sort of thing. And, uh, did you live at home though, or did you live I at lived home? at home, yeah. Okay. And so I uh, spent my, uh, doing that sort of things for four years. And, the Korean War broke out in his second year of college, and the draft board was going to take him, but would allow him to finish college, providing he take double-duty ROTC, which was two years at the same time. He took a transportation specialty, spent summer camp at Fort Eustis, Virginia, where I actually spent my basic and advanced training in the Army. I was also in the Transportation Corps. Then he went back to college to finish up, and by that time, they didn't need him in transportation. They needed him in artillery. So his first post was Fort Sill, Oklahoma, for basic artillery training, then to Fort Lewis for second lieutenant stuff. Most of the time, he was part of the training battery there. Then he went back to Fort Sill for advanced artillery, all within two years. He applied as signal specialist in artillery and wanted to go to language school in Monterey, but he said they were tired of educating him. And then I wanted to go to Monterey. Okay. And by that time, I think they were, were kind of tired of educating me. Oh. <laughs> so I had to go uh, and actually run a, uh, a company for training recruits for the remainder of my, my time. He had taken the love of his life, Joanne, out of college to marry her. And so went back to graduate school to become a biochemist when Joanne was finally able to go back and, and finish college. He said he was forced to go back to be with Joanne while she was in school. But I got the impression that Joanne didn't have to twist his arm too hard. During that, that last year, uh, I convinced Joanne to get married. And so we, uh, we bought a house, no, well, we rented a house in South Dakota, Tacoma and lived there for a while. So mm -hmm. in her senior year, she, she goes out and gets pregnant. Oh. And, had nothing to do with it. And uh, she had, she'd already been accepted it, to be a public school teacher. And uh, she confessed to them that she was pregnant, even though she wouldn't have the baby until October, or not until February, yeah. that was Chrissy, yeah. and they would not take her. Oh. They said no. Wow. They, uh, Can't get away with that now. You know, no, now. But, but then I think they, they must have tried to have the image of the teacher as being someone who lived in the schoolroom. Someone who was chased. And, uh, uh, you know, had no life other than teaching. <laughs> chased but not Oh, there's a good book title. There you go. Chased, but not caught. So, so uh, she got a job with the Minnesota Nurses Association, being their uh, kind of clerical person. He stayed in the reserves, the Army Reserves, for 16 years, but ultimately needed to retire because he didn't want to leave his family and job to attend Command and General Staff College. And without that schooling, there was no possibility of promotion. Since he had too much time in grade, he had to resign. I stayed in the Army Reserve for 16 years mm -hmm. until they, they kicked me out. They said I was too old. What? I was, I was. How old were you then? I don't know, but I. I, I and you're, 80, they, you're I, 85 now and you can still do the job. Yeah, no, no, I was, I was too old. I, I could have stayed 
if I had agreed to go to the commanding general's staff college. He started telling me about being the first one in his family to move away from family for a job with Pfizer. When Christy returned from puppy training. Somebody's home. Yeah. Yeah. And we're up to chapter three already. Wait, wait, wait. My dad's still here? (laughs) Well, we were worried about you. Yeah, because it's raining out and it's cold. And, and, oh, my word. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted a scotch, and so I made him have a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. I guess I should now turn you... off the recording. Oh, yeah. And she wanted to record I, I did. Mr. William Olson. What's your middle name? Arthur. Arthur. Uh-huh. William Arthur Olson. Uh-huh. Well, you guys could have at least put a fire in the car. We could have. snowed outside. No. Oh. Well, I, uh, yeah. No, what time is it anyway? It's after 10 o'clock. I know. I can't believe it. Well, I tried to get uh, Uh uh, Laurel to get back there at the grind wheel and doing this. uh, He tried to leave, but I wanted to see how my recorder worked, and I have no idea how my recorder works. (laughs) And it looks like we have 57 minutes and 10, <laughs> and 10 seconds of recording. So you can get, can you get five minutes of a blog out of that? I think I might be able to. We'll see. Sure, I could have sent Bill home after dinner for him to do his work and for me to get back to my writing. But what an opportunity I would have missed had he not agreed to that glass of wine. It was 10.15 p.m. when Christy came home on March 6th, 2018, and it was snowing outside in Woodbridge. I remember thinking I'd have a nice warm week there, (laughs) leaving Leadville to go visit Virginia for a week, but it was just as cold there as it was in Leadville. So I think about Bill. I think about the nature-nurture question, right? Was it nature? Was it his parents? Was it the generation in which he was raised, the greatest generation, as my father pointed out years ago? I don't really believe in either-or answers. And the bottom line is, I suppose I really don't even need an answer to what makes Bill Olson a pretty darn great guy. He simply is. I have links to several newspaper articles in which Bill is featured. In one of them, he's considered Prince William's go-to grave guy in a Washington Post article. He dedicated and continues to dedicate a lot of his time protecting old cemeteries, identifying and restoring markers and resetting stones, often with his own funds. 85 years old, no intentions of retiring. What makes a man like that? If we could only get our hands on that recipe, right? Thank you so much for joining me today and listening to my visit with Bill Olson. Quite an amazing man. I wonder if you have stories about amazing older generation people in your life that you might want to share with me. Do you have anyone like Bill Olson, anyone who is still working even when they don't need to? I'd love to hear your story. You can find today's show notes with links and photos 
on my website at letvelarl.com. If you enjoyed this episode and others, please subscribe to Alligator Preserves wherever you get your podcasts, and please tell your friends about it. I hope you'll support Alligator Preserves on Patreon. Check out the rewards you will receive. Rewards you will receive. That's hard to say. At patreon.com forward slash alligator preserves. And join me next time when I'll talk about something completely different. Until then, let's see. What would the greatest generation spread on their toast? Sardines? No, gross. Marmalade. My dad loved Smucker's orange marmalade. I use it when I make orange chicken now. Get in touch with me and I'll give you my recipe. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.